Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I N D Y P E N D N T dot O R G, and our print edition is out around the city. Yeah. And it's good to be back after a two-week uh, hiatus. My co-host, Amber Gagarian, is away this week. She will be back next week when she returns from Cuba, where she is currently traveling and reporting. We look forward to hearing more from Amba next week. Meanwhile, we have a fantastic show in store for today. In our first segment, we'll be speaking with working-class nurse and state assembly member Farah Sufran Torres about her first term in office, which includes becoming a mom for the first time just a few months ago. And we'll also chop it up with indie contributing editor Nicholas Powers. We'll be talking about his new novel, The Resurgence in Interest in Psychedelics, which he has long been a champion of, and why men should be speaking out just as loudly for a woman's right to choose. But first, we turn to the state capitol in Albany. There's been a wave of young socialist legislators uh, being elected in the past four years. Farah Sufrant Forrest is one of them before defeating a four-term incumbent in 2020 to win Assembly District 57 in Central Oakland. Farah was a nurse and a tent organizer. Since arriving in Albany, she's been fighting for the working class on any number of issues. And earlier this year, she became a mom for the first time with the birth of her son, David. We're excited to learn more about how she's been juggling all these responsibilities and how it's affected the way she sees the issues she's been fighting for. Assemblymember Farah Sufrant Forrest, welcome back to WBAI Radio. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you again, uh, uh, Farah. So, uh, first of all, congratulations on, on the birth of your son. Uh, how did you uh, celebrate uh, Mother's Day on Sunday? Oh, I just had a quiet dinner with my family and I definitely made lasagna, so that way I don't hear about it, about starving husbands throughout the week. <laughs> okay. Still j- always juggling. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, how have you uh, juggled uh, raising a newborn child with all the responsibilities of being a state legislator? Well, I mean, it's a lot. Like even Like, even as we speak here, John, I can't stay for too long because I have session going on right now but okay. um it is difficult because oftentimes I'm with David here and we're in session together or we're in conference together um or we're in district events together like it's just one big schedule that includes diaper changes legislation um mommy and me time and nap times along with lobby meetings just a lot. Right. Has he been on the floor of the assembly yet? He has been, but has not been officially presented yet. Okay. I see. Uh, so how has be- becoming a mom changed your perspective on your work as a legislate- legislator? Or uh, how has it maybe sharpened your perspective on certain issues you may have already been engaged with? Right. Um, is definitely just made it very focused and very narrowed for me about what's important to support constituents in Brooklyn. Um, 
when we talk about, like when I think about David, food insecurities are really important. Um, making sure that housing is secure, um, making sure that if something happens to David, I have insurance to cover the, the emergency trip. Like these are the emergency room trips. So these are the things that like constantly like as a parent revolve in my brain. And I try to put myself in a place of most average Brooklynites and be like, okay, well, if this is affecting me this way, then it must be affecting others. Because I think of myself just as a run-of-the-mill working class person. So if I'm struggling, I am sure someone else is struggling, but if more. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, one issue you've uh, uh, been involved with in the past is, uh, is tenants' rights and tenant activism. Uh, y'all are now in the second half of uh, this year's legislative session now that the state budget has been passed. Uh, how important is uh, winning good cause eviction? I mean, winning good cause eviction is the crux of the start, well, not start, but the, the continuation of the fight for rent stabilization um, in 2019. Now we need to make sure that everyone feels very stable in their homes. Um, the good cause, uh, the good cause bill really should be, you know, named I got a right to <laughs> dignity <laughs> while I pay the rent bill. Because <laughs> it's really just right talking on. about, hey, I've got the check. You need this check. So let's let's put some respect on this check. If I'm handing it to you, please renew my lease. Like, you know, it doesn't say that it's anti-eviction. It's anti non it's anti-corporate landlords. That's what it really is. <laughs> this bill is anti-corporate okay. uh corporate landlords. So right. It, 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 I mean, would you want to just summarize a little bit more what, what good cause of eviction uh entails uh for people who haven't been mm-hmm. the 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 meat and the juice of the bill is saying that if you have a tenant living in your building or house or basement I don't care where the point is you um should renew their lease unless something is barring you from renewing the lease um and if you don't want to renew the lease then we should engage um you know conversations beyond uh those two parties landlord and tenant and engage you know the courts and right. rent hikes yeah. mm-hmm. right because yeah, it, it would uh, it would limit rent hikes to one um one and a half times the rate of inflation correct right right so we're looking at what i think it's nine percent now yeah. i don't remember it's the exact strong right now but, yeah. Uh, yeah, inflation's around 8%. So, I mean, that would Eight. still allow for a 12% rent hike. So, um, at least at, at this time, hopefully inflation will go down again in, in the near future. Yeah, but it's really just looking, it at least provides some guidelines. Because what we're seeing okay. on the districts, what we're seeing on the ground is that mm-hmm. people are going how they want to go. And it's it's... It's again, it's not talking about the small mom and pop landlords. We're talking about corporate landlords who literally are there to make a buck. Right. And, and also, I mean, just to be clear for listeners, uh, I mean, good cause of eviction doesn't mean no cause eviction. I mean, if, if a tenant is ba- behaving badly, menacing their neighbors, uh, you know, has music going on, blaring all night or has a, you know, a pet alligator in their bathtub, you know, things 
things that would be, you know, out of line, they would still, uh, they could still be evicted if, if they're behaving badly. John, you're talking about pet alligators. This actually came up during a hearing where someone said, what about the pet giraffe? That's been a running joke. Uh, anybody got giraffes around here? Yeah, someone, a landlord really talked about how there was a giraffe. And this is a hypothetical case of a pet giraffe. I think we have more than just um, housing situation. So, <laughs> Right. Um, it, it, so speaking of this, so I mean, this, uh, you know, I, I think it would uh, benefit something like 1.5 million households in the state of New York, more than 5 million uh, in, individuals. Um, and, and I understand May 17th is a day where, uh, tenants are coming to Albany to make their voice heard. Yes. Yes. And when we talk about those, those people that would be affected by good cause, um, eviction bill, we're talking about people who are, are traditional New York city renters. We're talking about across the state, people who have been, subjected to the whims of whatever. But here we're talking about a class of people who've never, who don't even have housing court, that don't have any tenants really regulations on requiring a, a, a place to have a window, a room to have a window. We're talking about municipalities that have no tenant protection. So we're talking about the people who need it the most. Right. And uh, in, in 2019, when, when the the, the rent stabilization laws were uh, reformed and improved. Uh, you were up in Albany, I understand, uh, uh, protesting and, and, and got arrested with dozens of other activists uh, from Crown Heights Tenant Union and other groups. Uh, how, I guess if you could reflect for a moment on um, uh, going from being an outsider uh, protesting and getting arrested and being one of the legislators that people are now coming to uh, uh, coming to see. Well, you know, John, that's why when you say on May 17th that, you know, tenants are coming, I'm like, oh, I got to get ready because that's the day I'm going to put on my sneakers and I'm going to join my friends, my loves all out on the on the front lines because that's where the real action happens. I mean, 2019, um, I think the day was June 4th, where, you know, I got um, arrested uh, at the steps of the people's house the assembly house you uh -huh. know they thought we was crazy you know they thought that again what I say is I just want a little dignity when I pay the rent you know mm -hmm. that this was insane and they thought that this you know movement was laughable like this wasn't something that was rooted in 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 transformative changes in the community people making it up to Albany People like me, who's putting it all on the line. I mean, I'm a professional. I'm not supposed to have arrests on my record. Like, I could lose my license because of this stuff. But what's a license? What's a nursing license if I am not able to live in a home? And so, you know, coming from that point and now being on the inside and being like, listen, y'all need to stop playing games with people's lives because what happened here? is going to keep on happening around the state. People understand that housing is not a commodity. Housing is not a, a luxury. It's not a privilege. It's a, it's a right. And so we need to make sure we protect people's rights and what that means to people when they say they have a house and a home. 
So um, I'm really excited to see my tenants come up. Um, I love Tenant Tuesdays in general. And so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, great. And uh, uh, another issue, a pressing issue of the moment uh, is uh, the looming uh, demise of, of Roe versus Wade. And uh, I wanted to, I guess, ask, first of all, your perspective on, on the difference it makes uh, between freely deciding to have a child and being compelled by the state to carry a pregnancy to term. Uh, how do you see that now that you've gone through the experience? Well, it's so funny. I'm, I'm, the day that the Supreme Court's draft came out and, you know, everybody's riled up here, you know, because we, we know what the deal is about pro, what, what about abortion rights and how important it is to protect that. And so, um, rights to abortion, excuse me. Um, and so I'm with another colleague of mine. I'm like, we're, we're pushing our babies and I'm like, are we sure they're the right ones to be at this rally? Are we really the, the people to talk about <laughs> this stuff? And, you know, she says, she said, Farrah, we're pro-choice. Like, we made a choice. Um, David is a choice, you know, I made for my family and for myself, you know, and I'm, deal- you know, I live with my choice and I'm happy with my choice. So when I say I'm pro-choice, I am pro-people making decisions for themselves that really fits where they should be at in their life and for the future that they hope for themselves. So I really don't understand why people want to stamp their, you know, approval on other people's body. It's my body, my body, like my body, my decisions, my rights. Like you can't tell me what to do um, with it. So. Well, there's certainly some people that want to try. Um, of course they can. <laughs> try. Like, right. Now, uh, uh, Roe versus Wade uh, was codified into law in, in New York State, I believe, in 2019. I believe your yep. uh, Julia Salazar was one of the leaders in that in the, in the state Senate. Uh, but it, what more can the state of New York do to stand in solidarity with not only here in New York, but in other states who might need to flee uh, to, to New York to get a safe and legal abortion? The next thing now is to really codify in our constitution the rights, the the, the protecting people um, and unprotected classes of people. I think there's the the underlying um, tones of this messaging um, that is anti-abortion is that people are the same. People need to be treated the same. And that's not it at all. So now we have, uh, I forget the hashtags these days. I think it's equity now or something like that. But basically, there is going to be a, huh? What did you say? I'm sorry, John. Go on. Oh, but there is like this idea that, you know, we really need to have in our constitution, you know, signed, sealed, that protected classes of people. And um, when we talk about LGBTQ, when we talk about women, when we talk about, you know, pregnant persons, like we need to have a constitution that protects unprotected people. And so um, that is the next step. I know in the New York legislature, um, and that should be an example for the rest of the state because the state protects religious freedoms, but and the, the feds protect religious freedoms, but it does not protect you for the freedoms of everything else that you do from 
Monday through Saturday and not mm-hmm. on, you know, the holy day. So we need protections for that. Right. And uh, do you think New York should uh, allocate additional funds to be able to aid and support uh, women who might be fleeing from other states uh, to come oh, here? Oh, definitely, or- definitely. I heard that the, I was reading that the governor um, is actually, you know, beginning conversations with the feds or to feds to talk about um, really looking at the Fed, looking to for for federal funds um, to mm-hmm. assist in that. But I also think that one of the things that really, um, and you know, John, I am a nurse. So mm-hmm. when I hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, in the states where people have, um, and, you know, anti-abortion laws, there's a pill that they can take, that they can order online. Um, no, that is absolutely not appropriate. Abortion should be a supervised activity, a medically supervised activity. There's no way to unhealth this very health care issue. So when I say abortion is health care, we need to make sure that women understand, women or women with women, you know, yeah. uterus, people with uteruses, understand that this is a place that they need to be seeking protection and they deserve that. There's no reason why someone would be forced to have an abortion in silence. That is criminal. Mm. And uh, we, we just have a, a couple more minutes here. Uh, you're uh, you in your first term, you're up for reelection and uh, you, you're facing a, a challenge this year. You uh, in 2020, you knocked off a four term incumbent who was a protege of Brooklyn Congressman uh, Hakeem Jeffries. And, and now you have a, a, a well-funded challenger who's also backed by Jeffries. Uh, how, how are you feeling about being up for re-election and, and how's, how's that going? Um, to be honest, I need to be very, you know, clear that if people really paid attention to my first race, they would understand that this is a race that was for the people, by the people, and rep- represents a person that is of the people. And so when you have a nurse, a mother, a Black woman, and dare I say a socialist Black woman, it is not about me. It's about us. So if you are not supporting this race, if you're not supporting Farrah Sufrah Forrest, you're actively against everybody and every Black person in Brooklyn. I don't care what anybody says, but that is exactly what it is. And so... For me, this race is not just about my perennial challenger, because she's always running the race, but it's about how the powers that is centered around Brooklyn is released, is unable to release the idea that power is concentrated and that, in fact, power is in everybody's voting hand. Mm. And, and what's the situation with redistricting? Uh, I understand that assembly maps are now also... Uh, it, headed into the courts and and those primaries may be pushed back to August as well? Well, there's no formal decision yet. And so um, we're all waiting for the final court decisions. I believe it should be today or tomorrow or sometime this week that um, the final decisions will be made. Okay. And and, and last of all, in in your time in office, uh, what have you learned or what what has surprised you most about your position uh, that you you didn't expect or wouldn't have uh, imagined before you were actually 
inside the state legislature? Um, to be honest, the uh, most surprising thing is how disconnected Albany politics in Albany, the conversation, the discourse that happens in Albany is so different, separate from what is actually happening on the ground. Um, I think that there, it's a problem. I, I, that is the most important, that is what I was most, wow. I, there's no words to explain the shock that I feel about how different when I step through the LOB versus my district office. Hmm. All right, well, we'll have to leave it there, but Farah Safran Forrest, uh, Democratic thank Socialist you. Assembly member and nurse and new mother, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI 99.5. All right, g- goodbye. And uh, we'll be back with more with uh, Nicholas Powers after this short break. That was Us and Them by Pink Floyd. Welcome back to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. My co-host, Amma Gagarin, will rejoin us next week. Before we continue with our second segment, I'm asking everyone who can do so to give to WBAI and help keep Peace and Justice Radio on the air here in New York, beaming its signal across the five boroughs and beyond. Phone number is 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. 2950 or go to give number two wbai.org you can make a one-time contribution or become a monthly sustainer become a wbai buddy for as little as ten dollars a month now wbai will be throwing a rent party uh, later next week to cover its bills for the next three months but let's get a jump on that rent party 212-209-2950 or give number two wbai.org It's listeners like you who make it possible for WBI to air shows like this 
in voices like Varus who brought for us and our next guest, uh, Nicholas Powers, who I think you'll really enjoy hearing from. Again, that number, 212-209-2950, or go online to give, number 2wbai.org. You are also making possible all the other great shows on this station. After we're done today, you'll have the WBAI Evening News at 6 p.m., a special program at 6.30. And we only want the world at 7, Out FM at 8, Cat Radio Cafe at 9, and The Sweet Spot from 10 to midnight. Speaking of sweet spots, call 212-209-2950 or go to give number 2 wbaiorg and we'll be more than tickled to hear from you. Make that one-time contribution or become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month and receive all kinds of awesome benefits. Be sharing that number again before the end of the show. End of the show. And now uh, we turn to our second segment and we're l- delighted to be joined by Indie contributing editor Nicholas Powers. Nick has been a columnist for the Indy for almost 20 years. He's a professor of African-American literature and the author of three books, including his first novel, which is being released this month by Upset Press. His new novel is called Thirst, the Rich are Vampires. Uh, Nick has also written and spoken extensively about the power of psychedelics, uh, which are enjoying a resurgence in public interest these days. Nick, uh, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's good to see you, John. Thank you. I, I almost didn't recognize who you were talking about. He, was, he seems like a really cool guy. <laughs> well, it's it, it, it's great to have you with us, and, and we've got we've got a lot to. Uh, I hope we can uh, uh, chop up today. Uh, but uh, for starters, I just want to take a, a couple minutes to uh, talk about the uh, the draft uh, Supreme Court ruling that was leaked last week. That has really uh, just uh, uh, sent a lot of people reeling and, and angered. Um, which would repeal Roe versus Wade and uh, set the table for uh, many other terrible rulings in the future by this uh, uh, this court. Um, And we heard uh, Farah Safran Forrest a a few minutes ago talking about how much it meant for her to that it was her choice to make to become uh, a mother. Um, uh, Your your thoughts on what uh, drives so many people and, and frankly a lot of them are men to uh, want to impose these sort of uh, bans on uh, on the bodies of women who deserve the right to make their own choices. It's bullying. They get a chance to act like the saviors of unborn children, who in this who in this frame in this story. Uh, sorry, there's a little bit of noise background for my son. But um, what what the deep story is here is that men can pretend to be the defenders of unborn fetuses. But the reality is, is that it actually just gives them more power over women. That's actually the core pleasure. There's like the fun and fundamentalist. And that, that when men enact these laws, abridging women's right to choose, it actually gives, they think, men more power over women and it winds up really, really, really kind of um, using a very sanctimonious but self-serving excuse of this unborn fetus that they need to protect. Um, I'm probably going to have to move to another place to be a little bit quieter. Hold on. All righty. Well, we're having a live radio moment here. Uh, uh, Nick's uh, four-year-old son is uh, 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 getting in on the show a little bit. But uh, um, you better there now, Nick? Yeah, hopefully. I think he's he's calming down a little bit, but I may have to move to another place. But anyway, okay. that's live. That's live, folks, in COVID era. 
Yeah, that's uh, we got a uh, live radio going on here. Um, so uh, I, I hear you uh, about about the bullying, and uh, I mean, with your background in in literature, it, are there any uh, like works of uh, literature or, or cinema, for that matter, that you? Yeah, I, uh, look, I mean, the thing on is, to help yeah. understand like this sort of. Yeah, there's a false belief that abortion is primarily a women's issue. It's not. It's actually also really deeply a men's issue, and this is something that we see deep deeply ingrained in American literature. So if you think about The Graduate, which is a novel before it became the famous film starring Dustin Hoffman, or if you look at Run Rabbit by John Updike, and what you see over and over again is of straight men, straight men trapped in loveless marriages, straight men trapped in loveless marriages because they got a woman knocked up who Maybe it was just the first couple of dates. Maybe it was an affair. Maybe they didn't really love each other. And because she couldn't get an abortion or because of the shame and the guilt, primarily driven by religious extremism, what that did was it trapped men in marriages and long-term relationships that they didn't really want to be in. Now, and then what that leads to is at least what you can see consistently in American literature is what I call the kind of the gilded cage of the suburbs. So when people have gone out into the suburbs or here, they can't get an abortion. They can't get an abortion. And then they're trapped in these uh, sterile marriages or very abusive uh, households. But then there's really no escape. You know, they can't get a divorce um, or there's too much shame to get a divorce. And, And so for me, I think it's incredibly important to understand that abortion is not just a woman's issue. It's also a man's issue because as a man, you should really, really want to have a child with someone that you deeply, deeply love and that you're trying to actually have and build a family with. And it actually gives you the freedom to create that family and not be tied down by an accidental pregnancy. So there's that. And then finally, just the last thing, and this has been said over and over, but you can't say it enough, is that this is a form of class warfare on poor women. Because the other thing in American literature that's almost consistent is that middle class and upper class women and men who were faced with an unwanted pregnancy could always find an underground doctor to take care of them. And that poor women had to face uh, underground doctors who were in dirty environments, incompetent, or they couldn't even find them at all. And so... The, the plight of poor and working class women in a, a United States of America with no abortion rights or that there's a national abortion ban means that the poorest women are forced to deal with the heaviest financial burden of an unwanted, unplanned for child. And then in a country that has, you know, literally threadbare Medicare, threadbare child care, threadbare daycare, um, it seems an incredible cruelty to say, we love your child from conception to birth, but after that, it's on you. It's all on you. Yeah, the, the hypocrisy uh, just leaps out there. And uh, I mean, and also, we, we could be seeing, I mean, it's very likely that these same forces would uh, try to repeal the right to contraception, uh, gay marriage, yeah. uh, anti-sodomy laws. I mean, it kind of all falls under this rubric. I mean, Alito made the point about uh, how abortion is not deeply entrenched enough in American history and traditions. I, I guess 50 years isn't enough. 
Uh, well, obviously, some of these other things uh, don't go back uh, I- any further or much further than that. Um, so it, uh, it feels like we're at this uh, at this juncture where like we could actually see like, fundamental freedoms being repealed instead of expanded um, over time, which you know has been more of the traje- trajectory in American history. Yeah, and then the political consequence of this is that when you have women and gays who are now under the pressure of the loss of freedom, then that makes it harder for women and gays to organize because now women have this extra added burden of having to worry about unwanted pregnancies. And, and then for gay and lesbians, if the anti-sodomy laws you know, are then returned and if gay marriage is struck down, then that means a huge amount of their life has to go back into the shadows. And so, again, one of the things that this does, just on a political, brutal political calculation, is that it makes harder the life of people who are on the liberal left progressive coalition. And when life is hard, it makes it also hard to organize. So it takes away some of the potency of the political activism because so many people are now dealing with life crises after life crises after life crises. And when you're kind of jumping from emergency to emergency, it becomes really hard to be able to organize long term or medium term. So, I mean, I think that this is incredibly calculated. It's throwing red meat to the red base, and, and it's doing it based on this hypocritic, hypocritical defense of unborn children, when the reality is, if you really want to stop suffering in this world, there are plenty of places to go, like with poverty, war, disease. There's so many people who are already born, who are alive, who have relationships. You could wear, you could wear a mask in the middle of a pandemic. You could wear a mask in the middle of the fucking... So, to me, this is... It doesn't actually make material sense. All it does is it makes ideological sense. So, it serves their ideology, but in terms of actually decreasing the amount of of suffering in the world, it actually increases it. And that's the tragedy. Mm. Now, I I mentioned in your introduction that you've been a columnist at The Independent for almost 20 years now, and, and... You had a recent column in The Independent that I think a lot of people enjoyed uh, about uh, Eric Adams and re- really uh, our new mayor and uh, di- kind of dissecting why he was, became so popular enough to become mayor and, and why that popularity may uh, slip away from him. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? And you mentioned in, the, in that column that you are both as well. Yeah, you know, Eric Adams is... He is a, 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 a handsome and smart brother who's captured, who's captured the hearts of a lot of working class people of color in New York. And he's done it because, you know, for so long, a lot of our mayors have had a silver spoon in their mouth. And with that silver spoon, you know, the, the technocratic mayors, et cetera, and that they've been able to. <laughs> more uh, more I'm saying, the best way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I know I have a little Eric Adams right here. There you go. Um, anyway, long, long story short is that the image that I had of Eric Adams was of the shell game artist, because what he does is he takes real issues of economic inequality and like a shell game artist, he puts the word race over it and he kind of just does this shell game. And I think that that's the worst aspect of Democratic Party identity politics is that they wind up hiding real issues of economic inequality underneath identity and swirling it around so that people wind up like really missing what's at stake. 
Please. And so when I saw Eric Adams, he just really reminded me of a very smooth, incredibly smart, uh, very strategic, but also in a sense, he doesn't have any economic justice principles. You know, what he does is he's navigating between a, a terrified working class of color in New York who don't want uh, to be caught in the crossfire of gang warfares and gun homicides. And that's a very real, real need. But, you know, the, the damning thing about that is that it's only now that the left is beginning to address crime as a working class issue. So you see that a little bit on Jacobin and you see that a little bit on some of the other, you know, sites where people can now start talking about crime as a working class issue. But for a long time, we didn't touch it, uh, the people on the left. And I think that that was an incredible um, blind spot that we suffered from. And finally, you know, you know, Eric Adams really confronted, in a sense, BLM, um, because I think BLM had a deep Achilles heel. And the Achilles heel is that BLM, you know, was saying defund the police, defund the police. But again, that was an incredibly kind of um, class myopia. It was a very much a, a, something that middle class people who already enjoy a measure of safety could really buy into. And for poor New Yorkers and working class New Yorkers who have no love for the police, but would rather deal with the police than not have anyone anywhere to help try to protect them or keep them safe. And so when they heard Eric Adams, they thought, finally, we can get two opposing needs in one package. He's a black cop. He's someone who is uh, who, who, who combined both things. We can get policing with respect. He is a former black cop, which means that he can get the NYPD to keep us safe, which is what we need, but to do it with respect, which is what we need. And my fear is that that old saying, to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You can't throw police at every problem and, and imagine that they're going to solve every problem. There are just problems that are beyond throwing police at them. And that's why you really needed to have the vision of economic justice, because when he talks about, you know, upstream, these problems of gun violence start upstream, what he hardly ever really mentions is the incredible economic inequality that determines life in New York. Like if you were born in one zip code in the Bronx or in East New York, your life in many ways is already set. But if you would live in a zip code in the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side, you, your life again you have a, a whole different trajectory. And this is literally in one city. So I think that, you know, Eric Adams to me is playing a shell game with New Yorkers. And I, I right now he is coasting on goodwill. He's coasting on the solid, solidarity of racial identity politics. But at some point, you know, as Malcolm said, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And people are going to start to realize that, yeah, the police may have a slightly better um, behavior to them on the street because Eric Adams is looking over their shoulder, but people are still getting mass incarcerated uh, and that the streets ultimately aren't safe enough. Right. I mean, he's already being hoisted on his own petard a little bit with, uh, uh, you know, some of the crime rates up and now sort of the, the, the panic he created around crime is to some extent being directed back at him. Back at him. Exactly. And this is something that you and I talked about is that the, the, there's there's a rise in the perception of crime, which is far greater, far outstrips the rise in actual crime. It's not to say the crime isn't rising. It is. But it's rising in very specific areas. And it's a very specific type of crime, usually gun homicides and a lot of kind of you know personal violence. And it's spiking. But it's not so dramatic as it was in the, in the 1990s or early 2000s. 
And but what happens is the perception of crime has been inflated. And so I think Eric Adams is using that. And the last thing I will say is in the piece, you know, kind of mentioned this is that when those two police officers were killed in the line of duty about like a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. and there was a big, yeah, a big kind of police parade, you know, to honor them. Mm-hmm. You know, no, we don't have to be stupid or even kind of brutal or or callous. And we can say that, you know, they didn't deserve to die. They should still be alive today, right? We can say mm-hmm. that. And we can also say that that there is, a, after the, the massive George Floyd protest, that there is maybe a desire by the ruling class of New York City to use the deaths of those two officers as a way of promoting law and order, you know, of making law and order seem like a very desirable thing rather, you know, and so it kind of takes away you know, the, 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 the narrative away from BLM. And so at this point, I kind of feel like BLM has hit a wall. And, you know, I don't know if they have the organization or if they have the ability to really steer in, the, in these kind of new waters, to steer the ship in these new waters. Because right now, you know, people, people working class people of color are really worried about crime. And a lot of it is real. Some of it is being used for propaganda for the mayor. Um, and, and until BLM realizes that, I think they're going to be spinning their wheels in mud. Okay. Well, uh, moving on, uh, you have a, a new, uh, novel, actually your first novel out, third book, first novel. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, thirst, uh, the rich are vampires and, uh, what, what it's about and what inspired you to write it? Yeah. I mean, so I just moved to the other room to get a little bit more peace and quiet. I, I feel like my I feel like my son's like one of those like uh you know in the horror movie the monster chases the people through the house and they're <laughs> always like running from room to room and he's like Arr! Yeah, that's that's how I feel my son is right now. Um anyway, long story short, yeah, I I uh, the idea for this novel came from Occupy Wall Street. I, I was leaving Zuccotti Park and I was taking the A train um back to Brooklyn. And I looked up and I saw, you know, you see those ads over people's heads. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, and there was an empty space, right? You know, there was just an empty space. You just saw the, like the fluorescent light. And I kind of imagined a, a, an advertising there that says the rich are vampires. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have the title thirst yet. I just thought the rich are vampires. And that was obviously inspired by, you know, the 1%, the 99% rhetoric of Occupy Wall Street. Um, but the 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 dream seed of the novel lay fallow. It was, it was just in my life, and then um, it, it kind of the weather changed with Trump, and uh, with Trump, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the anger that he got elected in 2016, and then in those four years, it watered that seed of a novel, and I began to really imagine. The, the character whose name is Maz as this kind of like black Latina who's in, who goes to a, a high school in Brooklyn. And I began to imagine uh, this character who can hear vampires talk. And it turned out that the vampires were actually like the 1%. And that over the centuries, they had gotten themselves into positions of power because they wanted to start a nuclear war to get rid of humanity. And one of the ways they thought to do this was to basically enlist a real estate mogul with a weird haircut and to offer him immortality. He could be a vampire, but as long as he became president, he pressed the red button and the missiles were flying. 
And so she knows this from his, his listening to them. And so she has to find a way to stop them. And so I, I basically squeezed into this one novel a whole bunch of, you know, Occupy Wall Street, anxiety over Trump, 1980s, you know, baby fear of nuclear war. That was a big thing in the 80s. Um, and it all came together and, and, I, and I wrote it rather quickly. And it was a hypnotic experience. I, I loved, loved writing it. And the last thing I'll say is that towards the end of the novel, I, I fell in love with the characters and I had to ask each of them how they how they they wanted the novel to end. So I actually began to like talk to the characters a bit uh, because, you know, for a novelist, sometimes the characters become so real. You almost want to ask them permission on how to end the uh, how to end the book. Mm. And so where can people uh, find your novel? Upset Press. You know, if you if you look at Upset Press, um, it's going to be on the University of Arkansas Press and also dun, 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 Amazon. But I'm trying to steer people to Upset Press rather than Amazon, because obviously, mm-hmm. who, why does Jeff Bezos need any more rocket fuel money? And uh, and it's good to support, you know, the actual presses directly. So uh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, will you be doing any uh, book launchy kind of events, uh, whether in person or? Yeah, probably right over here at Bedside. There's a couple of cafes. Uh, I may do Green Light Cafe. So I'm just going to, you know, find out a place to do a good book launch. All right. Well, people can uh, you know follow, follow independent Twitter and uh, our social media as well. Yeah. Let people know about that. Uh, so we we still have a few more minutes here, and, and another area where you've been doing a lot of writing, and and you know I think it picked up a a lot of interest is in, in your writing about psychedelics, and um, we're we're at a moment where there's sort of been a resurgence of interest uh, in this uh, subject. Uh, why why have you written about psychedelics uh, for so long and and why do you think uh, interest is is really uh picking up steam now yeah i mean i w- i wrote about so psychedelics were a part of the stories i heard of the 60s so when mm-hmm. i was when i was a kid my mom and her friends who were all you know 68 babies they talked about psychedelics as part of the counterculture part of the hippie movement part of the anti-war movement it's just how people you know got down and then, so then growing up, when I was in college, I, that's when I tried psychedelics for the first time. And it was more for the rave scene and going out and dancing all night and sweating and, you know, coming home at sunrise, you know, and it was, and it was more joyful and fun. But uh, for me, my use of psychedelics uh, transformed dramatically in 2002 when I took um, LSD and MDMA, what's called candy flipping at Burning Man. And... It was a year after 2001. So I, I had come back to New York for graduate school in August 2001. So September happens. And that whole year, the city is shaking in fear. After 9-11. After 9-11, after, after the towers uh, were struck and 3,000 people died in front of us. And so when I went out into the desert, um, that was the first time that I used psychedelics in a therapeutic healing way. And they really helped me cry and laugh and dance and scream out a lot of those emotions from September 11th. So when I came back, even though I didn't really do psychedelics that consistently, the, the position of psychedelics in my life changed. And so when I would go to Burning Man or festivals, and occasionally I would do psychedelics, I had, you know, deeply healing experiences. And so I wrote about that in The Ground Below Zero, which was my second book. And then, you know, people in the psychedelic scene who know me asked for me to, to do a talk at a, at a, 
a conference called Horizons, which is a psychedelic conference. So in 2017, I gave a talk and it was called um, uh, uh, Black Bodies and Rainbow, no, Rainbow Bodies and Black Mask, kind of like a pun on, you know, uh, Black Skins, White Mask by Frantz Fanon. And that talk really talked about the intersection of race and class in psychedelics. And so that talk really went very well and it kind of was viral and a lot of people saw it in the community. And so that kind of began uh, me writing about psychedelics in a professional way. And so it's been a couple of years that I've you know read a lot of more books and it's oddly enough, I've, I've read more books, but I haven't done psychedelics because, you know, I'm a dad, so I can't, you know, I can't, I can't do it, <laughs> but <laughs> You know what it's, what, but I think in some ways that's a saving grace because then it forced me not to rely on personal experience, but to really interview people, to talk with people about all the the varied ways, the variegated ways that people do psychedelics, from fun to healing to whimsical to comedic, all the different emotions you can feel on it, and to read a lot of the the traditional books on psychedelics, everything from Allen Ginsberg's How to more recent books. Um, you know, on on Terrence Terrence McKenna, you know, the psychedelic history, such as like the new book, you know, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, to a book about the Grateful Dead called Heads, but then also to mix it with um, uh, Carl Hart's, you know, you know, many books now on the drug war, you know, which is like Chasing Liberty or High Price. And, you know, and then also looking at psychoanalysis and looking at the history of trauma, and, you know, psychological therapy. So it's like putting all of these things together has become, you know, for me, a, a great education. And I'm very grateful. You know, I'm very, very grateful. And how uh, would you say that the sort of the psychedelic moment of uh, this uh, upsurge in interest in psychedelics where we see a number of states uh, starting to legalize uh, uh, ma- magic mushrooms and maybe some other psychedelics in certain uh, municipalities as well, where, where there's definitely more interest in it. How, how does this moment compare to say the, the late sixties when there was obviously a. Yeah. The late, the late, the late sixties psychedelics um, had actually existed for quite a while. Like, you know, I think it was like, I forgot 1943 Albert Hoffman invented LSD, but there's always been psychedelics, natural psychedelics, like ayahuasca, Abigail, um, you know, West Africa, you know, I mean, every society has had psychedelics. Uh, in ancient Rome, during the Saturnalia, they had, you know, you know, different forms of psychedelics. It wasn't just alcohol. But the thing about 68 that was specific was that most psychedelics done in a society are done to keep the status quo. And this is actually true for indigenous traditions. In other words, indigenous communities have specific theological beliefs about gods and spirits and, and their relationship to the earth and also gender roles and economies. And so when they take psychedelics, it's not to upset the indigenous tradition. It's actually as a status quo to keep it going. And, and most psychedelics are, were done in that way, right? And then, yeah, psilocybin with mushrooms, magic mushrooms as well with different, you know, societies. But what happens with 1968, it was one of the few times that psychedelics were used by a counterculture to actually disturb the status quo and to actually stop the American war machine. So unlike in a lot of indigenous traditions, unlike in a lot of hierarchical societies, you know, beforehand, in 1968, psychedelics was used as part of a counterculture to stop the American war machine and to really stop the American materialism. And because of that, there there was a pushback, a, a, a deep 
drug war criminalization of psychedelics, which began with like reefer madness, and then LSD was going to make you go crazy. So psychedelics were seen as the doorway to insanity, that they would destroy your mind. And so that became the narrative. And, and then, then finally, how is it being? Treated? Well, that's the thing is that uh, organizations, I would say the lead organization is MAPS, right? You know, multidisciplinary, um, you know, yeah, multiple study for psychedelics, psychedelic studies. And, you know, that's the lead organization. But there have been so many kind of mid to small level researchers who have been saying psychedelics are incredibly good at healing trauma. And so psychedelics began to be medicalized and it began to be seen as a healing agent for people suffering from PTSD, like soldiers, cops, people of childhood abuse, whether it's sexual or mental abuse. And because psychedelics have been used successfully in, in traditional therapy, so now it's psychedelic, psychedelic therapy. Now people are coming out of the psychedelic closet because the old drug war narrative has been broken down. Now, the other thing is that BLM actually had a hand in that because when when uh, Black Lives Matters are, you know, criticizing the drug war and over policing, they're also as a side effect, we're also criticizing the drug war propaganda and saying, like, why are so many black and Latino men being shipped off to prison for low amounts of drugs when they actually use uh, drugs at, at less quantity than white people do? And so we have know, about 30 seconds Yeah, so basically BLM had a side effect in helping dismantle drug war rhetoric. And now the new frame of psychedelics as a medicine was is what it's allowing for the psychedelic renaissance now. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. But Nicholas Powers, contributing editor at The Independent, author of Thirst, The Richer Vampires, and uh, writer about psychedelics and many other things. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. And, And on behalf of my son... (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, yes. everyone. Yes, uh, always uh, good to hear from him as well. Uh, so uh, that uh, just about does it for tonight's show. We want to thank uh, our board operator, Reggie Johnson, and this show will be rebroadcast tomorrow morning from 5 to 6 a.m. We'll be back at the same time next week. I'll be rejoined by my co-host, Amir Gagarian. And uh, one more reminder, support Community Radio 212-209-2950 or go to give number 2 wbaiorg and our outro uh, music song here, our musical outro, is Childhood by Hamza El Din. Goodbye for now.